the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 2, 9 through 13, and 3, 12 through 14. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over the coasts of Cyprus and look, send to Kedar, and observe closely. See if there have ever been any if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the living, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, says the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among strangers, among every green tree, and not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O faithless children, says the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, the word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be with you and great to see some new faces as well as some old faces. Or I should say old friends, not old faces, but people that have been away for a while. It's great to have you back in worship with us. And by way of introduction, we are uh, looking at the book of Isaiah, the, uh, of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he seems to understand us. And I think that's what's stuck out to me, is that he seems to be a physician of the soul like Jesus is, that he seems to say throughout this book that we're all in search of something, that we're all in search of a spiritual home. And our hope is that in town would be a place that feels like home, where you can experience your faith, where you can be encouraged in your faith, but that it'll also be a place that you can find answers for your spiritual quest if you are here just looking. And we hope most of all that it will be a place that all of us can meet Jeremiah's God, that he will meet us in our stories and our pain and in our struggles of the week. So let's now go to God and pray, and let's reflect on what Megan read. Father, would you meet us now as we settle ourselves before you? Help us to believe that we are not here alone, even if it feels that way. Help us to believe that we're not here by accident, that just as you spoke to these ancient people, that you long to speak to us. Would you enable us now to hear what you have to say? Some of us are apathetic. Some of us are confused. Some of us are sad. Some of us are just bored with life. Would you help us? Would you meet us in these experiences? If we are skeptical, help us to see through the things that we find difficult in this passage to truly see you. If we believe for a long time and maybe this passage has become far too tepid in its familiarity, would you make it new for us? 
Move toward all of us in your renewing and restorative love. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In her 2008 book, Unhooked, Laura Sessions Steps Step talks about the detrimental effects of the hookup culture, and she talks about a number of young adults. But one girl in particular, her name is Alicia, and she's a student in an elite college. And one of the things that she does for entertainment is she finds it engaging and exhilarating to hook up with random guys each and every weekend and then move on, thinking that if she's the initiator, she controls the terms, the beginning and the end of the relationship, then she's the one in control. And this will insulate her from getting hurt. Session, the author, writes, the most difficult, dissonant moment may come when a girl understands that by trying to take control, she has simply done to herself what she meant to prevent boys from doing to her. And Alicia, in the last chapter of the book, concurs, you try so hard to stay free and unattached and indifferent while you attach yourself all the while. And then suddenly it's over and all the emotions surface. Every time you weren't indifferent, it pisses you off. Every time, instead of being sad that you were hurt by the loss of someone, which arguably acknowledges your capacity for real connection, you were angry that you let that person hurt you. And you experience loss in both the end of the relationship and in a hurtful battle with your own attachment needs. You end up hating both your needs and relationships in general. That's someone who understands their inner life. These experiences, and we should say that it's very true against conventional wisdom for guys as well, that there are no happier and serial promiscuity either. But for Alicia and for the other people in this book, it begins to reveal deep existential questions. And these women working against stereotype who took control over their love life to keep from getting hurt begin to question if they're really lovable. They feel distant from their inner selves, even while understanding it quite acutely, unconnected from their hearts. Another one says, I wasn't getting what I needed, and I couldn't speak up for myself because I was afraid of being rejected by someone whom I didn't even like. This really could be the story that the Bible tells of Israel, of God's people. It's a story of constant hooking up, not just sexually, but with other things that are God replacements, of finding meaning, finding autonomy, searching for these things as a way to stay in control, to keep from getting hurt, and it actually draws them away from this God who says they don't want to hurt them. They want to be for them. He wants to be with them. Jeremiah could be one of the chapters in a book entitled Unhooked, How to Become Unhooked from the Common Idols in Our Culture. We crave attachment, but we fear true intimacy and vulnerability. And so we keep playing the field. 
And it's actually the promiscuity of our love that actually cuts us off from our own desires and cuts us off from a relationship with God that would give us what we're actually looking for. As I said in the title of the sermon, we keep putting ourselves between us and God. Now, if you're here this last week, this little expose on idolatry and spirituality seems like a detour because Israel as a nation has experienced invasions and deportations and exile. And those who are left are reeling from national disaster, societal collapse. So how does this fit in when the nation is like Rwanda after the genocide or New Orleans after Katrina? Jeremiah wants to talk about spiritual devotion in that context. As we said, Jeremiah is survival literature. It's about finding our way in the world after trauma, finding our way in the midst of chaos, being able to say and see God where he's apparently not present. And part of surviving is figuring out what went wrong. And Jeremiah says that there has been a profound relational breakdown that predates and is far more significant than the political and religious breakdown. That in the midst of this crumbling empire and destroyed cities and the loss of land, that what God wants most is for his people to feel the loss of him personally. Because we are told that he sure feels the loss of them. That he feels the loss of us when we run away. And this is what the Lord says, verse two, chap- chapter 2-2. Two, two. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. We have this remarkable window into God's inner life of God being vulnerable, that he's not an idea, he's not a concept, he's not a theological abstraction, but he's profoundly personal and relational, that this God gives and receives love, that he yearns, that he longs, that he he misses his people, and his family when they are gone from him. This is marital language. It's honeymoon, romantic language. That his heart is so intertwined with the lives of his people that romantic language is the only thing that can get this message across to express how much he loves them and is for them. And it's why, conversely, that the language is so striking when Israel decides to move away. When they leave him, the language that Jeremiah uses is language of tragedy and trauma. And as Megan read, he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. And here we see described the nature of sin, that it's not simply bad behavior, but it's the forsaking of relationship. It's rejecting God's love for cheap alternatives. 
for alternate gods. And it's not just this generation that Jeremiah is speaking to. This is a very long story of God's long-suffering patience and love with a nation that doesn't seem to be capable of loving him back. He says in verse 5, What fault did your ancestors find with me? And then he gives a short review of their story together. The Bible is a story of people giving their worship to things other than Yahweh, other than God. It's terrible propaganda. And we see this when people give their worship to knowledge and autonomy. It begins with the story of Adam and Eve seeking security and predictability as they leave Egypt, rescued from slavery, now they're grumbling and they want to go back. At least it was secure, at least we had a place to sleep and food to eat. People giving themselves to literal physical idols, think the golden calf or the over-pursuit of sex. You could almost open your Bible at random and find that, but think of David and Solomon, whose kingdom comes down because of, among other things, their sexual promiscuity. Or think of the worship of self-rule in the book of the Judges, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What went wrong, Jeremiah is saying, in this tragedy, in this trauma, in this exile, was first and foremost a breakdown of relationship. It was a breakdown, a misunderstanding of spirituality. God's people forgot who they were. But there are two sins. The first is what happens commonly in problem marriages where one spouse leaves emotionally before they leave, really, or actually. They've sort of checked out on the relationship. That's the forsaken part. But God describes something else. They didn't just walk out of the marriage, but they shacked up with someone else, which makes the pain and the anguish that much worse. And much of chapter 3, which we only read apart, describes Israel's unfaithfulness in highly descriptive sexual terms. Now, this is not just about sex, but this imagery is what God is using to get across how indiscriminate their love has been and how it's made him feel and how it should make them feel, how deep their attachment to alternative gods has actually become over the centuries. And he says, you've lived as a prostitute with many lovers, and now you have a brazen look and no, no shame Where have you not been laid with? By the wayside, you have sat waiting for lovers. Anyone think about their spirituality in those terms? You want to raise your hand? Probably not. But maybe, maybe we should because negatively, this shows the terrible gravity of forsaking what is supposed to be the central and foundational relationship. It's like walking out on a marriage and shacking up with someone else over and over. And the trauma that that inflicts 
upon that person as well as upon the forsaken. But wouldn't that also mean that God wants us to understand a positive corollary of that? That if he's using this intensity of language, that there is a relationship that we are meant to explore that is so full of joy and intimacy and vulnerability that it's only sexual language that can almost get to the picture. These cisterns are broken. They couldn't hold the weight of their desires. And as Alicia in the book discovered, when we give ourselves to things that don't love us back, we get hurt. When things you see, friends, are that we worship, because that's what attachment is. When things we worship are broken, we become broken. We become twisted, anxious people, and we become stuck. We don't see a way out. And that's what Jeremiah is trying to imagine for us, is a new reality that is not present yet, but he is promising if there is a spiritual adjustment that it can be had even in the midst of chaos and trauma. But right now they're stuck. And these cisterns could be very large. When I hear cistern, I think of a little planter, but these could be things that were sunk into the ground to hold water. They're in a desert after all. And the availability of water is what leads to life or death. But if they're broken, the water seeps out and it stagnates, but also mud comes in. And when armies came in and they conquered someone, if they were really mean, they would throw people into these cisterns and these people would get stuck and they would die slowly of thirst. That's the picture. People dying slowly of thirst because they have walked away from their primary love. That's what went wrong, at least in chapter 2. The initial way that Jeremiah begins to describe it is there is a spiritual, relational breakdown. Maybe that's how it feels in your life. That either this is new to you and you haven't found that connection, and you think, man, life sure must offer more than what I've experienced. Or maybe you've been in this setting for most of your life, but you feel stuck. Something is amiss. Something is broken. And you feel forsaken. And you feel like you cannot find your way out. Well, Jeremiah, speaking for God, says something relatively surprising and certainly jarring, if that's our situation, because he says, therefore, I bring charges against you. Again. And I think the stress is on again. It's like, isn't this getting old? We're doing this again. And it seems very disjointed to bring charges against these people who are stuck. And maybe that's how you feel, and maybe that's what your fear is, is that you've gotten stuck in this particular pattern that you feel shame about, you feel guilt about. And if you open up to God, that's your image. 
charges, punishment, retribution. And we're all better off without more of that. We do that enough to ourselves. Has God finally had enough? All this talk of loss and yearning and love. Is this just a preamble to a very nasty divorce? Is he lawyering up to put an end to this relationship? Well, sort of. But the reality is that divorce has already happened. You see, the exile is the divorce that they're talking about. And there's a huge surprise in this language because this language, I bring charges against you, is covenant lawsuit language. It was very common in the ancient Near East. And so the readers would have opened this prophecy, or actually unrolled it, sorry, unrolled this prophecy and started reading this. And they would have seen this language and they would have said, I know what comes next. Because this language, a covenant lawsuit, was done in order to bring punishment against someone. It's for the offended party to have retribution and to reclaim what is theirs. And this is to be expected because isn't that how we normally respond when we are harmed, when we're wronged? And so we envision God in sort of an act of transference that we're about punishment in our lives, so he must be as well. But they're at the bottom of a cistern. They're, they're dying. They're thirsty. Is the need of the moment inflicting punishment? Is the need of the moment retribution? God actually says here, according to Jeremiah in verse 19, that your wickedness will punish you. That your unfaithfulness will rebuke you. In other words, sin is its own worst punishment. That the consequences of your sin are terrible enough. They didn't need retribution. What they needed was rescue. You see, God points out our sin not to put an end to our fun, but to save us from ourselves. To prevent the dehydration of our souls. And God here breaks custom. He breaks social, legal, and religious custom. Because this covenant lawsuit is not meant, it's not enacted to bring punishment, but it's meant to be an invitation one more time so that readers will be surprised by grace, surprised by the continuing faithfulness of God. After this litany of how they've abandoned him over and over for centuries. And yet, this image is what Jesus will refer to later in his parables of a God running to the prodigal son, breaking religious and social custom. He's an embarrassment to the religious people because he runs to embrace sinners. And that's what God is doing even here in Jeremiah. In verse 3, 1, he says, If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? No, would be the answer that everyone would answer to that question. Of course not. Culturally speaking, no. Legally speaking, no. 
religiously speaking, no way. Very clear in Deuteronomy, absolutely not. It goes so far as to say it would even defile the land. But God does it anyway. This is relationship over rules that we saw time and time again in the parables. Jesus choosing the person, choosing relationship over following the rules, whether they be cultural, societal, political, religious. He breaks the rules and breaks convention in order to embrace and to stay in, to stay with. Return, faithless Israel, chapter 3. And I'll just make some comments or read various snippets. You can read this later. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful. I will not be angry forever, for I am your husband. Present tense. This divorce that's happened in the past, through this exile, through them being unfaithful, God says, I am still your husband. I will choose you. Future tense. Continually, I will choose you. Return, O faithless children, and I will heal your faithfulness. Maybe you're here this morning and you're tired. You're maybe exhausted. Maybe you're disappointed because you've given your love to something or some things that don't seem to hold it don't seem to reverberate, don't seem to reciprocate that love, and so your heart is just leaking out all over your place, all over the place. Maybe in other relationships, maybe in your journal, you just see it's leaking, and you're so tired. And I can only say that with some probability of being accurate because that's where I find myself from time to time. Where... Is my love going that it's not returning to me? And the good news is that as exhausted as you are and as sinful as you may be, God does not seek retribution, but he seeks out rescue. He continues to seek out relationship to those who are stuck at the bottom of that cistern, those who are empty, those who feel beleaguered. He's saying, let me be for you what you've been looking for and all of those other pursuits and all of those other attachments. At least give me a try. Can't you see how these have failed you? Well, Jesus picks up this imagery of thirsting as we finish. And he says we're all seeking to quench a thirst that's ultimately a spiritual thirsting. That we may... Seek to quench it with sex, which is a thirst to be wanted. We may seek it with career success, which is a thirst for significance and recognition. We may seek it with children, which is a, can be a search for many things. It can be for legacy. Or we may search it for, with cultivating an image, which is really a search for belonging. And none... Hear me, none of these things are evil. 
the things themselves, but it's how we see them. It's what we do with them. We have to realize that they're broken cisterns. They can't be used in that way, that they over-promise over and under-deliver, and we stay thirsty. Those who use sex to feel valued end up feeling used and cheapened. Those who use career success end up enslaved to a job and not able to handle a negative review. Those who live through their children end up crushing them with these colossal demands. Those who depend on image maintenance to belonging, they find their belonging threatened when someone better, more attractive, better dressed, smarter, shows up in their group. One of the characters in Albert Camus' The Fall says, because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. I slept, slept in bliss, but awoke with the bitter taste of my mortal state. And I think that Clements is describing more than alcoholism. He's describing just addiction in general. Addiction to attachment to seeking belonging through things that don't give us a sense of real belonging. And Jesus echoes Jeremiah and his encounter with this Samaritan woman. For my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and made broken cisterns that can hold no water. He acts out this narrative of Jeremiah with this woman who's a Samaritan. She's hated by the Jewish establishment. But she's also a serial adulterer like Israel. And we see here grace going to people of all nations and of all sins. You see, he comes and he doesn't see her through the lens primarily of her promiscuity. He doesn't look at her and totalize her by her profession or by her behavior. This holy man is not scared off by her gender or by her profession and her promiscuity. He doesn't berate her over her sin, but he does point it out in order to get to something deeper. He could have just said, look, stop it. If you want respect, if you want self-respect, respect in this community, stop what you're doing. Stop sleeping around. If you want God to be happy, follow the rules. But instead, he points out a pattern in her life in order to reveal the root of her spiritual quest, the root of her over-attachment to men in that case. You see, the other religious leaders wouldn't have even spoken to her unless they had a stone in their hands. But Jesus, this holy man, we believe the holy God incarnate, sits with her. He sees her. He speaks to her. He dignifies her life, while at the same time treating her behavior seriously. He speaks to this sinful woman from a despised tribe. And we see that with this God, even a Samaritan prostitute has a place in God's kingdom and has a place more importantly, in his heart. And this, I think, is what Jesus is describing as living water. 
this reality of who God is, is a fountain that never runs dry. Where are you looking today, this week, to have your thirst quenched? Wherever you're coming from spiritually, I suspect that you know that you're thirsty. Why is it that nothing seems to quench these deep thirsts that all of us have? Nothing seems to be enough. Is that just a quirk of evolution? Or is there something deeper going on? Going on? I'll end with this quote from David Foster Wallace. Many of you guys love his writing. He says, worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're our default settings. David Foster Wallace is one of my favorite atheist theologians. This Lent, would you try to move out of that default setting, at least to question it? And would you listen for God's voice that says, even when all of those default strategies fail, Even when all of those other attachments leave you, I will be with you. I will love you. I will be faithful. I will forgive and I will care for you with all of my heart. Listen for that voice this Lenten season. Let's pray. Father, we believe that we are all, wherever we're coming from and whatever labels we may choose to identify or define ourselves and how important and actual those things are to us. I pray that there is a deeper, I pray that we would see that there's a deeper identity that binds us all together and that that we are human beings made in your image and that that brings incredible dignity And that we also are people whose default settings are set to walk away from you and find our loves in other places. But that we are also the same and that you offer us all yourself freely, free of charge. And I pray that this Lenten season, wherever we're coming from for the first time or for the many time, many times in a row, that we would ask for you and that we would receive that free forgiveness. And as we come to confess our faith to this table and then leave for the morning. I pray that you would instill in us an understanding of your grace and that we would pursue relationship with you at any cost. In Jesus' name, amen.